0: welcome to the summit for wellness podcast
1: where we help you climb to the peak of your health and now here is your host brian carroll
0: Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 59 of the Summit for Wellness podcast. I'm your host, Brian Carroll, and today's episode is brought to you by Hana One, which is an Ayurvedic herbal blend that helps your body to adapt to the different stressors of life. I actually use it a lot on my backpacking and hiking trips because it also provides a good boost in energy. And since I don't drink coffee, that is kind of my morning uh, pick-me-up that I like to use. So if you want to get your own jar of Hana One, go to summitforwellness.com slash H-A-N-A-H. Okay, in this episode, we brought on Sarah Russell, who is a nutritional therapy practitioner that loves to work on very, very complicated cases. But today we will be talking about the type of work that she does with the hypermobile population. So if you don't know what the hypermobile population is, those are people who have uh, very flexible joints in their body. But just because a lot of times we think of it as a joint related issue. There's actually a lot of other health issues that come along with it. So in my conversation with Sarah, we talk a lot about the different health issues that hypermobile people might be experiencing and they don't know how to help themselves. So we'll dive in pretty deep into what people can do to help themselves. And she also has some really good advice for just people in general who are trying to get better. Let's dive right into my conversation with Sarah Russell. Sarah Russell is a nutritional therapy practitioner who works remotely with clients worldwide, specializing in complex health conditions. Sarah's approach is client-centered, approaching each client's health goals foundationally from a root cause-oriented bio-individual perspective. Sarah has extensive experience with hypermobility spectrum disorder and the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes, she resides in the Tuscan countryside with her husband and six year old son. Thank you for coming onto the show, Sarah.
1: Thanks, Brian. Thank you so much for inviting me. Actually, uh, I have an announcement. My son just turned seven uh, four oh. days ago. <laughs> so, yeah, I have to update my bio.
0: <laughs> yeah, and for people that don't know, this is our third time recording. So, we have not been able to update that that they are now seven years old congratulations to your son
1: yeah thank you
0: (laughs) (laughs) so as um as we got started here talking about hypermobility uh let's dive into your background a little bit and what you have gone through yourself with hypermobility
1: okay well i'll try to keep it kind of succinct but essentially i was um you know i i started out in life as a very bendy kid um people kept telling me I should join the circus and stuff. Um, I would go to the, I would go to the circus and come back and my dad would be like, Oh, what did the contortionist do? And I would just show him everything. And he was like, Oh, great. I get to save a ticket on the circus. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and, uh, you know, once I, I would spend months at a time limping or, you know, things being kind of not quite right. A lot of neck pain and back pain that, you know, other kids my age didn't have. I was, uh, little bit of a hunchback kid in middle school already. And uh, sometimes I would just like, you know, mysteriously dislocate various things in non-traumatic ways, you know, like turning a key in a keyhole kind of thing, or, you know, things that shouldn't really uh, cause that. But for, you know, my mom was like, oh yeah, that's totally normal. And when, when I started taking on babysitting work as, as a 12 or 13 year old, she, she instructed me on how to be careful not to, you know, cause... Uh, wrist dislocations and elbow dislocations and shoulder dislocations by pulling too hard on the child and I realized only much later that it, that this was just a family strategy because hypermobility runs in my mom's side of the family and to her it was all normal and to everybody else I was very very strange uh, I I have a body that just doesn't work the same way that other people's bodies do And I've had some, you know, other people, other non-hypermobile people, and um, and I, you know, basically never really thought to mention my history of joint hypermobility to, um, you know, to any doctor in in a you know who was taking my history for one of my many mysterious health problems and I just remember doctors looking at me scratching their heads going oh my gosh I've never seen a patient with so many symptoms as yours and I'm I was very lucky that nobody really wrote me off as being uh you know a mental case partly because my blood work was never normal enough um you know, for, for someone to say, oh, it's all in your head, you're just anxious, or, you know, a lot of the things that a lot of people with so-called invisible disabilities tend to experience. So, um, you know, I had a multitude of just physical pain related issues and structural issues, difficulty even just, you know, climbing up a flight of stairs when I was in my early 20s, and just felt like that shouldn't quite be, So, so bad at that age, uh, things have gotten better over the years, but still, um, and you know, just digestive and multi-systemic issues really.
0: Yeah. And I, knowing you, you have a very extensive background in a lot of different areas of health and not just hypermobility. So does a lot of that research that you've done and a lot of that studying that you have done, is that because of all the issues that you have gone through with hypermobility?
1: You know, it's interesting. Um, in part, yes. And in part, no, I think that, that really having a lot of health challenges across different body systems made me very empathetic, uh, as far as, you know, being detailed oriented and listening to people and figuring out what could, what might be wrong and how we could help kind of, you know, get things, um, working better. Um, and uh and finding each person's kind of optimal place in health. Um, but what's really interesting is that when I signed up for for my nutritional therapy training, I actually went into it thinking, uh, you know, really wanting to specialize in fertility and pregnancy, which is actually an area that I've never had any struggles with. So I, I kind of joked about, you know, oh, this is basically the only problem I've never had in my life. <laughs> I've had all these other <laughs> health problems. Uh, but, you know, I, I felt so... Um, you know, I was at home with my, uh, with my youngest child, my uh, son Gregorio, who just turned seven, who, and um, I just thought what a blessing it is to, you know, to, to be a parent and have children. And I was thinking about all the people who struggle to conceive. And that was really ultimately what pushed me in that direction more than, you know, really a a full awareness of how much I myself had gone through. It was more of, you know, oh, let's (laughs) help other people fix, uh, this, you know, this area of life that, that so many people are struggling with today. But, you know, in my practice, what ultimately happened was while I have maintained a chunk of my practice that is oriented at fertility and pregnancy, even my whole practice has taken more of a complex client, uh, um, you know, complex, chronic illness kind of turn. So even a lot of the fertility work that I'm doing these days really does rotate around people who have specific health challenges, or even, you know, unnamed kind of um, vague, kind of mysterious challenges that have prevented them from uh, conceiving or carrying a pregnancy to full term, uh, as opposed to just, you know, working with infertility or fertility pregnancy as a more general kind of focus. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. And since we're talking about complexity, hyper-mo- hypermobility is very complex because there's a lot more going on than just hypermobile joints. So can you talk about what hypermobility is and what percentage of people have it?
1: Sure. So, you know, um, it's, it's difficult to say exactly what percentage of the population is um, Is so a a reasonable estimate is that about 10% of the population worldwide, as an average, qualifies as being as having hypermobile joints, and a fair portion of those people are actually asymptomatic. So many of them may never have health problems associated with hypermobility. So there's a difference between being, uh, you know, with between what is called benign hypermobility. So, you know, think, uh, you know, a very healthy yoga instructor or gymnastics teacher, somebody who just really doesn't have health problems, but is hypermobile versus a person who is, uh, who has hypermobile joints and who has uh, gastrointestinal problems, chronic pain, fatigue, sore muscles, structural instability, difficulty maintaining posture, um, issues, you know, even just with staying in an upright position without getting uh without having uh extreme lightheadedness and feeling like they need to constantly lie down to prevent fainting those kinds of things you know even allergies extreme allergies and chemical sensitivities are associated with hypermobility for reasons that are just kind of beginning to be understood to some extent um so um and essentially because hyper joint hypermobility is just the you know, the, the surface, it's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, and it, it is, uh, an indication of essentially a dysfunction in connective tissue. And so much of our body is made of connective tissue. So, you know, including our eyes and most of our digestive tract, and, you know, essentially 80% of the protein in our body is connective tissue protein. And that's a lot. So if your body isn't able to properly make that, uh, or if the extracellular matrix that is responsible for for giving integrity and structure to your connective tissue doesn't function, then you you can definitely run into a lot of trouble. So it the the most reasonable estimate that I've seen in terms of symptomatic hypermobility, what used to all be lumped together as hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which at the time was actually called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome hypermobile type, is about two to 3% of the general population. So people who have joint hypermobility as part of a constellation of complex health problems that span across multiple body systems. Um, And then there is a percentage of the population that is hypermobile and very healthy with no issues whatsoever. So I don't want anybody, you know, who's maybe listening to this call who has asymptomatic, um, you know, flexible joints, or has children with asymptomatic, uh, very flexible joints and no health problems whatsoever. I don't want you to get worried. It doesn't mean that anything bad will ever happen to you. Um, I'm so let's just make sure that that this is clear that that we're really just talking about, um, you know, this, the the, this, the um, hypermobility spectrum disorder and Ehlers-Danlos uh, hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome as being disorders that affect people who are not just hypermobile on the surface but also have um, symptoms across many different body systems.
0: So earlier you mentioned um, how when you were growing up, you learned not to pull too hard on the hand just in case you dislocate like wrists or fingers or any kind of joints like that. and so you had mentioned that it was something that's been passed down through generations in your family, this hypermobility. Is it pretty common to have hypermobility um, through family lineages? And if so, do you then take a bigger look at families' histories so that you can um, understand a little bit more about the hypermobility um, systemically in the person that you're working with?
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, so, in fact, um, symptomatic hypermobility, both in terms of um, hypermobility spectrum disorder and hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, this is the realm not of rheumatologists, although there are some rheumatologists who do uh, work very, very well with these conditions, but really of geneticists. So, it's it's the geneticist who is the doctor who, who almost always diagnoses these disorders, um, Of course, you know, if if a person goes to their primary care doctor and says, I have, uh, you know, debilitating headaches, I have terrible fatigue, I have all these gastrointestinal problems, blah, 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 blah. And they never, the doctor never asks and the patient never says, I have joint hypermobility, by the way. um, A lot of patients with joint hypermobility have no idea that that their joint hypermobility is abnormal. It's really interesting. Um, And uh, so, yes, these are... um, By and large, I mean, even though there are many cases of, you know, somebody saying, okay, I'm patient zero in my family. I'm the first person, you know, to have this issue, almost always taking a good uh, family history. It will be quite easy to figure out how this passed through the family line, even though it is worth specifying that while 12 of the 13 forms of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome um, have clearly identified genetic mutations that are associated with those conditions. Uh, Hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome as well as hypermobility spectrum disorder and these two are not there's a lot of controversy and and the the kind of predominant view has changed over time as to whether they're the same condition or different conditions. Um, It is a little bit of an artifact to distinguish the two in you know in many people's opinions. But um, these these two um, conditions are not associated with one single genetic mutation, and the most reasonable, up to date scientific research and hypothesis suggests that, that these are both con- that this is a condition, or you know possibly two conditions, depending on how you classify them, that that are associated with a cluster of gene mutations. So. So, looking through the family lines of people both with um, hypermobility spectrum disorder and hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, what geneticists have noticed is that while in the past, up to just a few years ago, all the scientific literature used to state that that uh, hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which later, as I noted, became kind of divided into hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and hypermobility spectrum disorder. but was just one condition but these two conditions are they used to be assumed to be autosomal dominant but what was noted by geneticists who specialized in these uh, in these conditions was that there wasn't a clear uh, just 50 percent transmission and there was more expression in females than in males and you know so the question was how can it be exactly autosomal dominant if more than 50 percent of offspring of parents with this condition are, you know, um, inherited. And why do so many more women, uh, proportionally to men have this, um, condition? Because with autosomal dominant conditions, it really shouldn't, it should be right around 50% and it should be an even split. So what is being hypothesized right now is that there, there is a cluster of genes. So it, it would be called an oligogenetic, um, hypothesis where essentially there are anywhere between, you know, three and maybe six or seven genes, uh, or maybe three to five genes. They're not really sure that, uh, that when they are mutated can cause, um, varied levels of expression of, uh, hypermobility alongside connective tissue dysfunction with these various, with this constellation of issues that I mentioned, uh, which can vary from person to person in in unique and interesting ways. So, um, well, you know, the reason why there can be a patient zero is because maybe dad has two genes and that's really not enough to express very much, except maybe, you know, uh, a bendy thumb that hasn't really ever given the person any issues in life. Um Or, you, you know, and then mom has a couple of those genes. Well, then they have a kid who maybe inherits all four of those genes. And all of a sudden you have a very symptomatic hypermobile person with a constellation of, of health problems that uh, that maybe everybody in the family says, "Wow, we've never seen this before." And yet it's always been kind of lurking latently in the two uh, branches of the family tree. Um, more often than not, you'll see at least in in one of the two parents sides of the family um, that there is symptomatic hypermobility um, if you if you take a careful enough family history
0: since we're still learning what it is in the gene structure that might be leading to hypermobility do any of the tests like the 23 and me or other genetic tests are they looking for hypermobility yet or is there still not enough data to fully understand what gene to or genes uh to be looking for to uh show the hypermobility
1: yeah there really isn't to my knowledge um you know at least not in in any of the gene interpretation uh software systems that I've ever seen um you know used with 23 there me there is no um you know I haven't looked at every single one of them there aren't any that are showing you know specific stuff that that um you know if you go through the raw data it is possible that you know if if you know exactly what you're doing if you're going through the millions and millions I don't know how many you know thousands of genes are in the raw data as opposed to one of those reports that's generated by one of the softwares that interprets um, the 23andMe it is possible that something will show up but really what we're looking at is um, very much uncharted territory all and and I don't think that the 23andMe by and large unless it's being interpreted by somebody who's looking at the raw data with a very interesting lens is going to be of much use to people in this specific area. I've seen, you know, um, SNP reports generated by various different uh, SNP systems, um, you know, from, from clients who have used the 23andMe and hypermobile clients. There's just no correlation between any of the stuff that that is, you know, any of the methylation genes or any of these other things. I mean, uh, the occurrence of, of these single nucleotide polymorphisms is really pretty much the same in um, in the hypermobile population as in, you know, a non-hypermobile population. So um, it is possible that there is something that is being picked up by 23andMe in the raw data that nobody is really using. Now, uh, geneticists are you know, like I said, there are 12 forms of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, 13 forms of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, 12 of which are known to have a specific gene causing a specific um, form of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Now, there are some forms of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, like um, the classical form, that that has a couple of, you know, two or three different genes, but it's still one gene causing one specific condition. Whereas with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and hypermobility uh, spectrum disorder there are theories as to you know gene clusters so um, it costs a lot of money to to run genetic testing and most geneticists you know who are even <laughs> it depends you know of course if, if you have a, uh, a medical geneticist who's doing clinical work as well as back office research and has a lot of funding there are some clinics Um, in different parts of the world that are collecting large, large amounts of data and are just waiting. Uh, You know, they just keep it there for years and, and they're waiting um, until they have the money to, to run um, additional tests to identify the specific genes. Now there is um, an interesting theory um, proposed um, or hypothesis proposed by Dr. McLaughlin, which has, which is called the RCCX theory. And I do think that it's very fascinating. Um, and also there has been some interesting recent research that has been done on cultured, um, cells. Um, you know, basically they, they culture the fibroblasts from under the skin, uh, or from muscle tissue. I, I, I'm a little bit rusty right now, forgive me, but essentially they take these fibroblasts and they feed them You know very expensive bovine serum in order to get them to proliferate and then they look at them under powerful uh micro uh, microscopes and then um, what they observe is the difference between how the 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 fibroblasts and the extracellular matrix behaves depending on which form of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome um, or hypermobility spectrum disorder is is diagnosed in that specific patient versus a healthy, you know, non hypermobile population. And what's really interesting is that they do see incredible differences, um, between the, you know, the basically in structure and function of, uh, both the extracellular matrix and the fibroblasts, depending on, uh, what condition the person has. So even, you know, taking, um, a hundred different hypermobile people with, um, you know, relatively similar looking symptoms. Um, Again, if you have one of those 12 forms of of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome that is not the hypermobile type, they all do come with some degree of hypermobility. But if one of those forms that is associated with a a one gene to a specific uh, disease correspondence versus the hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and the hypermobility spectrum disorder, which are kind of a unique... um, Cluster of um, you know symptoms with um, a very interesting presentation. Basically, the extracellular matrix seems to just essentially not be there. So there's a, a lack of structure uh, due to to um, to the lack of integrity in the extracellular matrix that isn't really present in the other forms um, of uh, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome if I'm remembering the research correctly. It's, I don't review it every day, but it was fresh in my mind a few weeks ago.
0: Yeah, it's interesting just hearing all the the research that is coming out about it. So uh, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Earlier you you had uh, hinted at different health issues that people might experience when they have systemic hypermobility. So can you go into some of the common health issues that you typically see in the hypermobile client population?
1: Sure, yeah. So um, often what I'll see is um, a mixture of, you know, extreme allergies, sensitivities, sometimes a diagnosis of mast cell activation issues, um, sometimes neurological dysfunction uh, that can span from um, fainting episodes or near fainting episodes to orthostatic intolerance. chiropractic and structural issues where, you know, that the person has uh, atlantoaxial instability or craniocervical instability. A lot of the time people um, who have Arnold Chiari malformation type one, which basically involves the slipping of the cerebellar tonsils down um, into the space where they're not supposed to go in because essentially the ligament around the brain is is very loose it's very lax so it's not just around the joints it's around the brain too um, so that can cause debilitating headaches and pain and a lot of neurological issues a lot of those people have um, hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or hypermobility spectrum disorder so there's an overlap between these conditions um, the um, gastroenterologists do are are one of the few uh, medical specialties that do Uh, often know about Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and hypermobility spectrum disorder because they, they see so many people who have uh, debilitating gastroenterological symptoms like uh, severe reflux, gastroparesis, very delayed gastric emptying, a lot of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth because of the inefficient and ineffective, (coughs) pardon me, uh, motility uh, um, in the GI tract. Um, the, the muscle tone is poor, not just in the uh, voluntary muscles, but also in the muscles inside the body. So the, the gastrointestinal tract, as well as, of course, you know, so much of the of the um, tissue um, in the gastrointestinal tract being made of uh, connective tissue, collagen, for example, eye problems, you know, detached retinas. Um Issues with, um, you know, detachment of the lens to um, a lot of, you know, it's not specific, but, you know, just functional vision problems. Uh, Obviously, that's not enough to make one suspect that a person is maybe hypermobile, but um, slow wound healing, a lot of stretch marks, saggy skin, unusual scarring. Um, These are, you know, very common issues. Mm, that that are often observed in people with hypermobility that is manifesting in a symptomatic way. And of course, you know, um, frequent, um, you know, twisting your ankle very frequently, dislocating a wrist or dislocating another joint, uh, like, you know, the shoulder and you just from non-traumatic kinds of things, a lot of bruising, uh, easy bleeding. These, you know, our, our blood vessels are made of connective tissue, so um, a lot of the delayed healing, a lot of the the bruising, a lot of the bleeding issues just come from inefficient um, capillaries and, um, and whatnot. So and sometimes a lot of the functional problems that, that people with hypermobility have can be mistaken for adrenal and thyroid dysfunction and um, the tests will often come back okay sometimes not so great Um, and then of course anxiety and depression are very common and um, in people with hypermobility who also have symptoms and it's very complicated to try to define to what extent the hypermobility is a cause and to what extent it's a consequence of the anxiety and depression because it's definitely you know um, a vicious cycle so for example you know, um, this, the scientific literature has discussed the fact that the lax ligaments around the brain do kind of inevitably make people with these conditions more susceptible to, um, to neuropsychiatric problems. There's a higher incidence in the hypermobile population versus the non-hypermobile population of anxiety, of depression, of panic disorders, of obsessive-compulsive disorder, and even obsessive-compulsive personality disorder post-traumatic stress disorder so you know um just less resilience in a way and this to some extent could just be because of the the ligament laxity around the brain um uh, to some extent there is also higher incidence of autism for very complicated reasons that i think would require a whole other you know uh podcast to discuss uh those connections but um definitely you know um a little bit of a of a different um, kind of neurological and neuropsychiatric presentation compared to the non symptomatic uh, population, um, and definitely you know the chronic pain, the the chronic fatigue that that a lot of people with uh, symptomatic hypermobility have, even the um, even the issues with sensitivities and allergies that so many other people can't understand I mean extreme reactions you know uh, my husband once came home from uh, from the dry cleaners with with um, a shirt that he had had dry cleaned he hugged me and I just literally fainted in his arms because of the fumes from from the chemicals that the dry cleaner had used Um, you know just even going out in public in in an Italian city sometimes I I do have to wear a filtration mask and it you know it does um you know being feeling like you you are a little bit confined and you can't really you know eat what normal people eat and you can't really breathe the way normal people breathe can cause its own set of anxiety I'm sure and partly because of how uh cultures respond to people who have these issues I mean a lot of the time they're just not understood or tolerated very well um well supported especially if the person doesn't have a diagnosis they're just looked at as hypochondriacs so that can be um, you know very difficult even you know another thing that has been fairly well studied in the literature in in the hypermobile population is kinesiophobia so essentially in a nutshell kinesiophobia is the fear of movement and it a lot of people who um, you know who have suffered dislocations just by you know performing simple movements like I was talking about turning a key or even you know typing sometimes or uh holding a a pen or um you know hip dislocations from uh I don't know just simple activities like uh doing uh like a, a martial arts class and you do a twist and all of a sudden you have dislocated your hip and um so that can definitely cause it's a fear of movement. So the person becomes more sedentary because the reasoning is, well, you know, if if I don't do anything dangerous, um, and, and and life, of course, daily movements, you know, even like carrying a cast iron pan to the table with food in it can be, can feel like a threat, um, to the wrists or to the fingers. So there are, the, the world feels threatening. And so the person starts to move less and less. And that is, it's, you know, its own, um, Problem and of course you know physical therapists who specialize in in uh, hypermobility are very aware of of the kinesiophobia that a lot of patients can develop over time and there's another interesting side to the puzzle which is you know when a physical therapist who isn't very experienced or confident in these disorders comes face to face with somebody who has a history of just you know maybe dislocating. their shoulder multiple times a night in their sleep, they're afraid of of working with this person for fear that, you know, maybe they'll give them an exercise that will cause the person pain and suffering and dislocation. So there's a kind of a kinesiophobia that, that the practitioner can develop as well. You know, can I touch you? Will you break? Um, kind of thing. And, and that, it, it's very difficult, I think. Uh, I think it's one of the hardest aspects of daily life. And I personally think, you know, we all have our own kinds of thresholds for injury, but as somebody who uh spent um a couple of years as in 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 her late teens <laughs> myself uh working nights and going to school during the day and babysitting in the afternoons just so I wouldn't sleep because sleep actually you know was was a time when my body would relax, and I was more likely to actually um Injure myself because because I didn't have as much control over my movements, so my situation was a little bit different from kinesiophobia. I I was I really liked to maintain kind of control through alertness and being aware of my movements, and that was kind of my illusion of you know I won't get injured if I just do this. And of course I would still get injured, and then of course I had a whole uh, a big health crash because. For a year, I would only sleep. I was only sleeping on Mondays. I, I'm so embarrassed to say this in public, but yeah, <laughs> literally that was my day that I would sleep. Um, so uh, you know, it, it's a difficult balance to find. Uh, nonetheless, I do have to say that you know, as scary as it can be to um, to suffer uh, strange injuries and dislocations from just normal everyday stuff, I actually learned a really great lesson um, from, you know, things like dislocating my shoulder while I sleep. And I dislocated my scapula while I was giving a talk last March. It was, it was very painful. Um, what, what I learned from that is that it really doesn't make that much sense to be afraid of, of doing stuff in the world. Um, you know, you, you can either, you know, try to live in, in a, in a sort of cocoon, but you, there's no safety, if you can't even sleep without getting injured, um, you just kind of surrender and, and live the, the adventurous life that you want to live. So I travel, I, I do stuff. Um, you know, I, I go up and down stairs. I live in, in a rural area. I walk up and down the hill. I, um, I actually maintain my, um, proprioception, which is another area of health that, that can be, um, impaired in people with, um, symptomatic hypermobility. So you're not really aware of wh- where you, the various parts of your body are in space, which is another reason why we, we can possibly get injured more often. So it can cause issues of balance and whatnot. I maintain my proprioception by, you know, by doing not only my physical therapy exercises, but also just walking barefoot in in the river I, and walking from rock to rock. I teach my son to do the same thing as a kid. I climb trees. My parents never uh, told me, oh, don't do this or you, you might break. Um, so grateful to them for that. Um, you know, I didn't have a diagnosis, but we definitely didn't have a family history of people getting injured in funny ways. And my mom would tell me about all the adventures she had as a kid, just, you know, jumping from rooftop to rooftop. Some of it may be an exaggeration, but she was a very, uh, you know, she had a lot of fun in her childhood and she made sure that I did too in mine. So I think that helped build a lot of my confidence versus a lot of people who just grow up with this fear of breaking all the time. And I've been there, you know, I was there in my late teens and early twenties. Um, and, and I got over it, you know, you just kind of have to, or you won't enjoy your life. And I was at a conference last December, um, on, um, hypermobile, um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, hypermobility, spectrum disorder, and related conditions. And what really stuck with me was um, a talk given by um, by a patient um, advocate for uh, people with osteogenesis imperfecta, which is a, a similar uh, genetic condition to hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, where essentially, instead of having, you know, frequent uh, dislocations, they they have frequent uh, breakage of bones, just from performing simple activities. And his motto was, uh, "It's it's better to have one, uh, you know, one more broken bone and and more life experiences than uh, less life experiences. And uh, you know, don't live your life with the fear of, uh, you know, just limiting activities out of fear. And I really liked that perspective. And, uh, and I think that it is really important for anyone out there listening to, you know, I, I do think it's useful to have a diagnosis. It was incredibly relieving for me finally to get a diagnosis and realize, oh my gosh, I don't have, you know, um, 20 different illnesses. I felt like I was just collecting illnesses and it was really uncomfortable for me. Um, what I realized was that everything just kind of fit neatly under this one umbrella. Oh, I just have one issue and it, it's causing, yes, this constellation of issues and I can I can get better by doing physical therapy. I can, you know, modify the way that I eat. I can improve my lifestyle. I can pay attention to these things. I can't control everything. It just feels so great. Just to let go of wanting to control everything too. Like, you know, like I did in my late teens when I wasn't ever sleeping. Um, So I think that, you know, we all have to find our life balance and that there is always room for improvement no matter how dire a diagnosis may seem.
0: You had mentioned that you dislocated your scapula and that it was painful. Are most of the dislocations painful or do some dislocations not have any pain associated with them at all?
1: So um, everybody's experience is a bit different. There are some people who can painlessly dislocate um, or, um, you know, or sublux parts of their body as, you know, kind of party tricks. Uh, I, I do, uh, know someone who can do that with his shoulders and it, it is a bit excruciating to watch. Um, it's actually not recommended to show off party tricks, even if the dislocations don't hurt. I can, I can still do that to, um, you know, to my little finger, but I, I don't do it very often. (laughs) Literally. I just, you know, it's just a geneticist follow-up visits where you show off uh, the weird, stuff you can do because you can actually in the long-term cause micro trauma that can um you know make you more prone to um to arthritis and other you know chronic painful conditions in later life my experience has been for the most part that um that the dislocations that i've experienced are very painful um so um you know that the scapular dislocation was um Definitely, you know, I guess just because of the muscle groups and, and all of that involved, it was not, it was, it was partly really painful because I was in a situation speaking for about a hundred in, in front of about 150 people. And I couldn't really do what I would have done at home, which was, you know, maybe lie down and try to get in a better position. I just had to keep standing in that position. Um, and it, it was awful, um, And of course, you know, had to keep my my same facial expression and and just keep talking in in my normal tone. Uh, So I think that contributed to the pain. But it definitely is painful regardless, at least in my experience, um, when, you know, when I suddenly dislocate something. Um, I I remember I was in Venice um, in May and um, I was standing in front of a restaurant reading a menu and a guy... um, who was in a little bit of a hurry rushed past me and brushed against my right arm and, and my shoulder dislocated. And I, 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 literally just let out this big yelp. And the guy was like, oh my gosh, what happened? What happened? I was like, it's not your fault. I'm, I'm, it just hurts. Just keep going. You didn't do anything. It's not your fault, but it really hurt. Um, uh, so, um, yeah. Does that answer your question?
0: Yeah, it does, and as we can see, there's a lot going on physically and emotionally with the hypermobile population, so what are some strategies that uh, you apply when you're working with these type of people to be able to, uh, you know, touch base on all of these different areas that that they're having issues with?
1: Yeah, you know, I think that a lot of it really just has to do with, um, you know, trying to get out of a place of fear and getting for, you know, as much as possible in, in a place of empowerment. Which also means, <laughs> ironically, to, you know, for some people, uh, but it isn't really a paradox when you start to think about it. Empowerment comes from a place, when you do have a chronic illness like this, to, of letting go of, of a need for control. It really has to do with just accepting that there that unpredictable things that aren't always pleasant can sometimes happen. Um, and that, that shouldn't, you know, it's a little bit like learning a foreign language. I spent many years teaching Italian to American students. And one of the first things that I always struggled to teach, to teach my students was really, you know, don't just put together simple, boring sentences that you know are error free. Take risks, try to say complex things, work on communicating, because that's really what it's all about. And it really is very similar actually to my outlook of on, on resilience in, um, in situations of chronic illness. I'm not saying, you know, do crazy stuff that will, you know, um, that will put you at risk of, of something major. What I'm saying is, you know, if you are afraid to get out of bed, just get out of bed. The next day, maybe, you know, just walk to the, to the living room and sit at the table and then go back to bed if that's all you can do. But take baby steps, be brave. Um, if you, you know, if you get minor injuries, just remember that, that you're getting stronger every day. I do physical therapy every single day. I do my exercises. Um, I go to my physical therapist. I try, every week sometimes he's not available or our schedule our schedules don't match up or i'm not available but i do my exercises every day and he tells me oh my gosh i just love working with you because you're you're my best patient you're so dedicated and i'm like yeah of course because if i if i get if i slack i'm going to get worse so um, and i really believe that you know resilience yes it's a word that we throw around so much and it doesn't you know we don't always really uh remember the deep and important meaning that it has it's really about trying to be as you know i'm using a word that that may be associated with uh you know with trauma and 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 physical and emotional pain for people who are hypermobile but it really is about being flexible Uh, we want to be um, able to be agile both emotionally and physically to the greatest extent that that our situation will allow. And again, that means taking baby steps, starting from where you are today. You know, um, I used to run the high hurdles when I was in high school and uh, had to stop because of um, because of my right hip dislocating. It was the hip that I would rotate as I went over the hurdle. And um, <clears throat> anyway, that was the end of, of that career. But to me, you know, we all, that's a symbol, you know, the, the, the hurdles is a symbol. We all have our hurdles that we have to get over in life. We can't stay stuck and wallow in our, you know, wallow in self-pity. We have to try to, to live the best life that we can and not ask the question of, you know, can I do X, but how can I do X? Always really trying to to look at the glass half full because it's really not that useful to look at the glass half empty or all empty you know if it's like they say you know if if your glass seems um, halfway empty pour the water into a smaller glass and just change your perspective because um, it, you know even i i realize being part of you know having having an identity that is partly shaped by by being chronically ill i do realize that if if that is all you base your identity around, or if you base your entire, um, social circle around, um, you know, socializing just with chronically ill people, what you, what you end up with is a bit of a, of a stuck identity, um, where you just identify with being sick and it's not a great place to be because it doesn't really, you get, you are somehow invested In in getting some kind of recognition or rewards, uh, you know, both um, tangible and intangible, you know, sometimes just the emotional reward of being part of a group where before you haven't found another group that has really fully accepted you. But the trade-off is staying as sick as possible because, you know, once you start getting better, you're in this kind of limbo where you're too sick to be healthy and you're too healthy to be sick. And um, it can be a little bit of a strange and disconcerting place to be. Um, but I think that it's really important for, for all of us to be as limber as possible in our social interactions, not just be friends with other ill people. Uh, I think it's really important to be friends with other ill people. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have a circle that is composed of just, you know, healthy, normal people, whatever that means, right? But um But I don't think that it's healthy for a person with a chronic illness um like hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome to just be friends with other people who are chronically ill because you can start to feel really invested in your sickness um you know even just kind of you know um throwing around um your symptoms on social media and you know sometimes uh weird stuff happens like there was this woman who went to Um, a specialized into a specialized physical therapy program that I did uh, as well so it was an intensive you know several weeks stay in the hospital and and do daily intensive rehabilitation physical therapy stuff this woman went into the same program that I did and she she was very very upset about the progress that she had made and when she left, she threw a gigantic fit because all she wanted was an electric wheelchair. And the head physiatrist prescribed it to her. And now she's just in a wheelchair, not moving, because she was invested in that identity. And it. I, I find that really very heartbreaking. I think that we should all really make the effort to, you know, to be as, as healthy as we possibly can. And I'm not saying, you know, if you have to walk with a cane, that you should throw away your cane and and, and risk, you know, physical injury to yourself, or maybe not be able to walk. I'm just saying, you know, really just do the best that you can to, to get better and better within the limits of, of what your situation is. Um, and to, you know, I'm, I'm working on this concept of healthy identity within chronic illness. What does it mean to develop an identity that is healthy while at the same time having a body that is not 100% healthy. You know, I have been actually judged by other healthcare practitioners for, you know, for admitting to being chronically ill. I, you know, I did for some time not really talk about my, um, my chronic illness with colleagues because I was afraid of being judged. And once I did start, you know, mentioning, you know, here, there, oh, you know, I, I have this issue, you know, I, I just, You know dislocated my scapula while i was speaking yesterday they're like oh my gosh you know you should know enough about uh, nutritional therapy to not have any health problems and that's really not what it's all about so there can be like i said this unhealthy investment in in almost kind of showing off how ill you are where you get rewarded socially for that and at the same time there can be a terrible stigma especially in certain types of healthy circles you know physically healthy and always imagine quotation marks around the word healthy, because there's nobody who has perfect health. Um, There can be an incredible shame that, um, and stigma that, that can be attached to someone, especially, you know, someone like me who works in the, in the holistic health world, uh, who, you know, and where you can sometimes be judged very harshly, if you're not able to, you know, heal yourself completely. And, you know, I have had, you know, people, very well-meaning, wonderful people throw things at me like, you know, you should just, um, you know, everything has an emotional cause and um, you should go back and look at your childhood traumas and all of this. Yeah, I mean, I I do, everybody has emotional baggage to work on and I have, you know, my my fair share of traumatic childhood memories for sure, but that's not 100% of my explanation and there isn't, you know, a single you know, nutritional supplement or protocol that will cure me. I, I literally do have this underlying constitutional issue that I will carry with me, but I have gotten a lot better over time. And, you know, I went, um, from having, you know, three, four times a night dislocations of my shoulder to having, you know, to, to actually moving this summer and being able to carry some pretty heavy objects, um, And I went up a lot, up and down a lot of stairs in the process of moving. We have two flights of stairs in our new house and we had one in the old one. And, um, you know, it, I, I managed to do it because of my, um, because of my resilient outlook and because of my just hardworking, um, you know, daily efforts with physical therapy, I, I would not have been able to even help with my move, um, if I had not, you know, just really worked on a daily basis on this, if I had, you know, if I had remained stuck in kinesiophobia um, or in, in this, you know, in a world view where where I was somehow invested in showing the world how ill I am by, you know, by remaining constrained and constricted um, and, and having a re- very restricted lifestyle and unrestricted physical activity, then I wouldn't have been able to do as much as I did. And I definitely wouldn't be able to travel internationally um, back and forth from Italy to the U.S. every year and, you know, see all my favorite people and go to conferences. You know, every time I buy my ticket, I don't know if something's going to happen to me last minute, but I I buy my ticket um, and I go. Every year I've been able to go and there have been times where I'm not, you know, where I've spent an afternoon crying because I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to talk the next day at a scheduled event that, that I've been invited to speak at, but I've I've always somehow managed to do everything uh, that I've set my mind to. I'm, I'm a very stubborn person, and I do think that that can be, you know, if it's well-channeled, a good asset. I'm not saying, you know, spend a year and a half or two years without sleeping at night, except Mondays like I did in my late teens. Uh, it was not setting a good example in my stubbornness, but still, um, there are ways that you can productively channel your stubbornness. And, um and have, you know, build a healthy identity and build healthy interpersonal relationships. I, you know, I have, uh, my husband doesn't have any diagnosable chronic illnesses of any kind. Um, he, he is a very understanding person and I have, um, you know, I do feel like I have been able over time to communicate to him what my limitations are and he's as supportive as he can be, you know, is he a hundred percent perfect all the time? No. Uh, that would be a little suspicious if he were, right? Uh, you know, one of those too-good-to-be-true scenarios. I have, you know, I, I'm living the life of my dreams in a beautiful place. Um, and, um, you know, and that is partly because I've been able to um, just have this kind of fighter attitude, this warrior attitude of, I'm I'm just going to do everything I can to get better day by day, baby step by baby step. I mean, have setbacks, those happen It just deal with them as they come about and just keep on moving because, um, I think that's, you know, really the only way that I'm going to get where I want to in life.
0: Yeah. You had so many good points in what you were just saying. And especially when you're talking about, um, you know, being a practitioner and people looking at you funny because you have these health issues. I can't, think of a single practitioner that I know that doesn't have some kind of health issue that they're battling. Yeah. And I think some of the best people or practitioners out there are ones that have gone through different health issues and have learned from themselves and been able to apply it to the people that they work with. So,
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And like you were saying, we all come from different walks of life, whether you're just a person that has hypermobility or you have these other, um, health ailments, it, it is a part of you, but it doesn't have to define you. It doesn't have to make it so you stay, you know, in that wheelchair because you think that will protect you from dislocating your hip. So we, we can all try to be the best we can be and that's the best that we can do.
1: Exactly. Yes. And as I always say, you know, if you're doing your best, remember, there's nothing better than the best. So exactly. Yeah.
0: Well, Sarah, do you have any final words that you want to share? I know you just dropped a lot of truth bombs there. So didn't know if you had any more.
1: Yeah. You know, just to anybody listening who may be struggling with chronic illness, whether associated with hypermobility or not, I just really want to say, you know, um, I don't I don't want you to get the wrong impression from anything I've said. I don't want you to feel like I've in any way judged you. You know, everybody at some point feels hopeless. Everybody at some point feels um, like they can't move forward. And if, if you're struggling, just make sure that you reach out for help. Make sure that you, you know, don't be afraid to tell people I need help. You know, you, you'll you find your true friends that way. You'll build your real community that way because those people who will listen to you, who ask you, you know, how are you today? And you and you just break down crying and you say, oh my gosh, it's just been the hardest month ever. That person who listens to you and, you know, makes you a cup of tea and and just lets you talk and, you know, hold space for you in your pain. Those are your true friends. And, you know, again, you know, find find a good support network, even a professional support network around you to help, uh, you know, my, in my professional role, I do so much to, you know, to support people with nutrition and lifestyle and just help them. You know, I, I work a little bit as a traffic director to people, making sure that they get the right kind of care from practitioners, um, you know, who have a different scope of practice from mine, you know, so for example, somebody, a, a, a therapist who may um, you know, uh, focused on trauma recovery or, um, you know, physical therapists. I refer a lot to those, as you can imagine, that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, just really make sure that you're getting help because so much of the time we all try to do too much. Um, you know, everybody who is struggling with a a chronic illness is a superhero. You don't have to do everything on your own to, you know, to stay a superhero. It's, it's, uh, you know, every day is, is its own, uh, set of obstacles that you have to overcome. So like I said before, if you're, if you're doing your best, you, uh, there's nothing better than the best.
0: And people can find, pe- uh, find you at buildnurturerestore.com. You work a lot with very complicated cases. And I know Sarah gets a lot of, uh, referrals from, uh, other nutritional therapists. So she is definitely known in the community to be the person that works with very complicated cases. So once again, you can learn more about her at buildnurturerestore.com. Are you on any social media channels?
1: I am, yes. I am on Facebook as Sarah Russell NTP. I'm on Instagram and Pinterest, also as Sarah Russell NTP. I'm on Twitter, but I have to admit, not very much as <laughs> Sarah Russell NTP. Um, so, yeah, you can find me on on the web as buildnurturerestore.com and on social media as Sarah Russell NTP. And... Russell, uh, Sarah with no H, and Russell with two L's.
0: Awesome, and we'll have all that in the show notes at summitforwellness.com slash 59. Thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on and being vulnerable with us and sharing your, your truth and your, being open with all that you have gone through with hypermobility and um, for reaching out and telling others that may be going through this just what they can do to better their situation. So thank you so much.
1: And thank you so much, Brian, for having me on the show and for being such a great host. I really appreciate it. And thank you to everybody who's listening.
0: Well, there you have it, folks. Even though we were talking about a very niche uh, type of population, a lot of the information that Sarah brought to this episode can be applied to so many different situations. So uh, if you can take away anything from this, it's that we all are starting at some point, and the best we can do is to try to be the best that we can be. So uh, never stop trying and always try to uh, improve your health to the best that it can be. Okay, next week, we will have Mike Lee on to the show, who is an OPEC certified uh, fitness coach, and he does a lot of training with uh, professional CrossFitters. So he comes on to talk about his scientific approach to fitness and how he uh, trains athletes differently than he would train um, just general population. So super fun conversation, and it's a little different than what we normally do. So it, it was definitely a lot of fun for me. If you enjoyed this episode, then please go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. They really do make a difference. That would be why every single podcast uh, out there talks about leaving reviews and ratings. So if you go to summitforwellness.com slash iTunes, it would really help us out a little bit to get out in front of more people. So uh, your support helps us to continue with the show to provide uh, this health information to a larger audience. Keep climbing to the peak of your health and we will see you next week.